The scripture today is from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. And as I read, you're going to notice that we've already sung and had whispers of this scripture all through the service so far. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. I love the inflection at the end. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, right? Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. It's good to see you this morning. Welcome to Advent. Can you believe it? Uh, We're staring down Christmas. It sneaks up on me every single year. Part of it, I think, is that we live in Florida, and you forget that it's close to Christmas time because it's so hot outside still. Thank thank the Lord for uh, some beautiful weather this week. Uh, We're going to spend the four weeks, uh, these four Sundays we have leading up to Christmas, looking at this famous prophecy from Isaiah. It seems to make its way around at Christmas time because it so explicitly points to the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ. So chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a son is born, and to us a child is given. And so it is the promise of a royal son, of a king, in whose kingdom all of the sad things of the world will come untrue. And what you see as you look at the passage as a whole is there are a series of reversals that will take place uh, once this child king reveals himself and his kingdom comes on the earth. So if you see in verse 2, just, just follow along with me for just a minute as we go through this really quickly. In verse 2, we're told that what was darkness will become light. In verse 3, there's sadness that's turning into joy. In verse 4, there's oppression that's giving way to justice. And then in verse 5, there's violence yielding to peace. What we're going to do is we're going to take in the four weeks those four uh, verses in turn and look in in more detail explicitly at what it means for these, these turn of events to happen and what the promise of them are for us. See, the problem, Christmas has become far too sentimental and it really is the enemy of real Christianity. I was reminded of this uh, last night. We went uh, to, to see my niece and uh, see a sh- show in Buddy the Elf. Buddy the Elf, right? The Elf, the, the musical or whatever it is. And it, it was entertaining, but it really is just silly. And, you know, and it's trying, I think, desperately to, to the Christmas spirit. It's all about what is the Christmas spirit, and it's just so sentimental. Uh, and it really is, I think, uh, the enemy of real Christianity because Christmas was an invasion. It was an eruption. Heaven violently tearing through the veil of this world as the baby Jesus burst from his mother's womb. And yes, I I use that imagery that way. 
God coming to overthrow the old order of things and to establish something new. And ever since then, for 2,000 years, the old has been slowly dying away. And in its place is what Isaiah calls, in verse 7, the increase of his government and his peace. Now, let's be honest, it doesn't feel like this. It doesn't feel that this is so, does it? But it is, and that's the point. And so we approach this text in a very similar way as the original audience did. They looked forward to the coming of this king. For 740 years, they waited for these prophetic words to be fulfilled. And this Advent season is a reminder that we are waiting too. For two millennia, the church has been waiting for the king to come again a second time. And when he comes, the old will be wiped away and the kingdom will come in all of its fullness. And darkness will flee before the light. That's our theme for this morning, focusing on verse 2 and then and, and, and reversal. So each week, I think, you know, we're going to do a theme that is a characteristic of this kingdom that Jesus has, has brought and is bringing. And, and today it's light. It's a kingdom of light. And one of the things I love most about Christmas is all the lights, don't you? Lights on the tree, lights in the house, lights on the house. The lights are not just decorative. They're symbolic. They carry a message. And really, here's the message, these three things from this passage in Isaiah. What we're told first, well, we just see these three things. And I'm sorry, the outline doesn't fit with this. It's because this came late in the week. I tell you that all the time, but particularly this week, okay? So bear with us. Uh, this, this is kind of a mess this morning. But I want you to see, first, we're told about a deep darkness. Secondly, we're shown a dawning light. And thirdly, we're promised a bright future. All three of those things, that's really what the lights surrounding Christmas remind us of, that the world is a land of deep darkness, but there is a dawning light in the birth of the child in Bethlehem, and his coming foretells his coming again to bring a bright future for all who believe in him. So first, first the prophet begins by describing the world as a land of deep darkness. So look there in verse 2 again with me, if you will. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. Now, we have to ask the question, what does this metaphor of darkness convey? And I just have a number of things as I, as I kind of did the study material and all, you know, all my preparation. It means that the world is first an evil place. It's a place where sin and death prevail. Uh, the world is a scary place. Because, of course, we've all at one time or another in our lives been afraid of the dark, haven't we? Some of us may be still afraid of the dark. After dark is when all the scary things in the world come out, right? It means... Darkness means that the world is a place full of spiritual blindness and error. You know you can't see in the dark. You don't know which way to go. So when we say she's in the dark, what do we, we mean that she's uninformed. She doesn't know what other people know. She's not in the know on what's going on. The metaphor means that the world is a condemned place. Darkness is a metaphor for God's judgment in the Bible. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But there's something very specific going on in the original context of these verses, and we'll talk a little about it a little every week. But What's happening here is Isaiah is helping the southern kingdom of Judah remember the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom when the northern tribes of Israel were taken away into exile. Uh, there's, there's a military conquest. This is the aftermath of that that Isaiah's writing into. And that in the Bible was, a, was a, uh, an act of God's judgment of sending his people, throwing them out of the promised land. So it's a condemned place. The land of deep darkness is a place where God's judgment and condemnation have fallen upon his people. But maybe most of all, this image of darkness means that the world is a God-forsaken place. 
John 1, 5, 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light and in him there is no darkness. And so wherever God is, there is no darkness. And wherever there is darkness, God is not there. Now, not, you know, this is not an absolute, of course, it's a metaphor. Metaphors can only take you so far, so don't get too wrapped up in that. But here, here's what I think it means. At the very beginning in Genesis 1-1, if you remember, the creation we're told was void and formless and dark. Darkness hovered over the chaos of the world. And the very first thing in Genesis that the Lord did was say, light. And light came into the darkness. But then, of course, as the story goes on there in that book, when sin entered the world, part of what was happening is, is the world began to revert back to that pre-creation original darkness. And so a land of deep darkness, as is described here, is a place of God's, it's full of God's absence. That's the way I want to say it. It's a place that is full of God's absence, a place where God is not at work. And of course, ultimately, this is a picture of what we mean when we talk about hell, which Jesus describes as a, as a place of outer darkness and gnashing of teeth, if you remember in the Bible. Now, I'm going to put all that together uh, to help us this morning and say this, that when we come across this image of darkness, I really think what the Bible's trying to teach us is, is that the world is stuck. We're stuck. We're not getting anywhere. In school, we learn about the Dark Ages, which refers to the historical periods. I'd be impressed if anybody knows this. I had to look it up this week. But it's from about 476, which was the end of the Roman Empire, to about 1000 AD, or some say 1100 AD, where the historians say civilization really underwent a significant decline. There were no new advances in medicine or philosophy or technology. I mean, if you erase that whole 600 years or so, period from the timeline of world history, you wouldn't miss anything. You could just skip right over it. But here's the thing, from heaven's perspective, the whole timeline of world history since the fall is the dark ages. That's not to say we've not made wonderful progress, we have, of course. But the idea that we are progressing towards a greater enlightenment, which is what the philosophers, some of the liberal philosophers, particularly of our day, Want to, tell, want to tell us to believe from the perspective of the Bible, that is just silly. That despite all of our technology and, and our education, we are just as barbaric as we've always been, just a little more refined. I mean, look at our politics. There are no real new ideas. There are no real solutions. We're just going around and around and around the same issues with the same rhetoric. It's just that the majority changes every 10 years or so. We're stuck. Does anybody feel stuck? Any of you feel stuck? You ever feel like you're putting in all this effort and getting nowhere? Think of the Apostle Paul saying, the good I want to do, I, gosh, I can't seem to do it. And the stuff I know I shouldn't do, that's the stuff I can't stop doing. He was stuck. There were unhealthy appetites and uh, dysfunctional patterns of behavior in his life, and he desperately wanted to be free from them. And yet, despite all of his trying, he couldn't seem to make any progress. He just said, oh, I'm just stuck. And if you've ever been stuck, I mean, like, really stuck, like, in the middle of the cow pasture after two weeks of rain, stuck. Polk County, I know you guys know this, okay? This, this resonates. Then you know that trying to get unstuck on your own, what usually happens? You get more stuck. It's happened to me a few times. In the Isaiah text, actually at the end of chapter 8, so if you have a Bible and you want to kind of peek back into chapter 8, 
It describes people who have this experience of being stuck, they can't seem to make any progress, and they begin to consult the mediums and the magicians of their age for solutions. And it says that they look to the earth, and when they look to the earth, their eyes are, are looking to human solutions on the earth, and the result is that they only see distress and darkness. They're looking to their experts, to the mystics, to the scholars, to the politicians for solutions. They're hoping in human resources and politics to fix the world, and it's not working. They're only getting more stuck. And this is what it means to be in darkness, that the world is an evil place, and no one They can say whatever they want to, but the truth is no one really knows enough to cure the evil and the suffering in it. So the lesson is for you and I, we need help. We we don't just need help. We don't just need to be improved. We need a rescue. And it really cuts against, right against what our culture believes. Because our culture says things like, live your truth and follow your heart. And the way out of the darkness is to uncover the light within and then let that light shine and guide you wherever you go. So the power for change comes from within. The problem is that you're letting the world and the expectations and the demands of people snuff out your light. And so the way to get unstuck is to become a more authentic self, that we have the light within us and we can dispel the darkness. We can overcome poverty and injustice and violence. And the Bible says that's actually the very thing that's wrong with the world. That's why we're stuck is we keep looking to human solutions. We keep looking within to ourselves. And the truth is that the power that you need to get unstuck doesn't come from you. It has to come from outside of you. That the truth for your life doesn't come from within you. It's outside and you have to submit to it. It's the only way out of the darkness. The rescuer then must come into the world from outside of the world in order to save the world. And that is the message of Christianity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. You see, the Word who exists outside of the world, apart from the world, God Himself came into the world in the person of Jesus to save the world, and in Him, we're told there in John, was life, and His life, listen to this phrase, His life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. See, we need his life. His life is the light that can dispel our darkness. We don't need more education. We don't need better social programs. We don't need any new ideas. We need the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's what the text promises. See, look, that upon this land of deep darkness, indeed, there is a dawning light. Look at verse 2 again. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them was light shine for, skip down to verse 6, to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and so forth. Here's the king, the one with the government on his shoulders, but he was not what they expected or what we expect. You would think he would have been a conquering hero, but or a victorious general, or a powerful politician, because these are the kinds of people that we expect could maybe change the world. But what we're told in verse 6 of this text is that this one who they had longed for for so long would come as a child in weakness and obscurity and powerlessness. And it begs the question, why? Why would God choose to do it this way? Why the Bethlehem scene? Why, you know, the eruption of the kingdom of heaven into the world is the Bethlehem scene? 
Why would it happen that way? And I really have two answers, I think. And the first is that it had to be a surprise. And it had to be a surprise because his kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. Those are the words of Jesus. And later in his ministry, of course, he says to Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world, which is the whole point. His coming was to overthrow the old and to bring something new, something the world had never seen, something not of this world. That's the only way out of the darkness, a heavenly kingdom. And what would you expect a heavenly kingdom to look like? Well, it would probably look like light shining into the darkness. In other words, two opposites colliding because the world could not be saved by something worldly. The way of his coming was not of the world because his coming was not of the world. This child, we're told, would be called Mighty God, verse 6 looks there. He would be more, in other words, than just an earthly king coming into the world from outside of the world and bringing heaven with him. And this is the mystery of Christmas, that the child was human, but also true God of true God, light from light, eternal, born of Mary, but also eternally begotten of the Father in heaven, not created. Wrap your mind around that, can you? What a surprise. But that's also the second reason that he came as a child, I think, is not as a hero, is because not only did it have to be a surprise, it had to be miraculous. It had to be supernatural, because that's the only way to push back the darkness. It's the only thing big enough to get us unstuck. And that's, the, that's, and that's exactly what we see. When Isaiah says, verse 6, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It means he will be a wonder. It's actually a noun there in the Hebrew and not an adjective. It's an, it's an important word. It's a very specific word. It's a word that's used to describe God's mighty acts in saving his people from Egypt, specifically in Exodus, that he is a miracle. That's what it means, that this one would be a miracle. It would be something utterly of God's doing that could not be explained in any other way, of no earthly origin. And listen, that just reminds me of a couple of things. First, that, that Christianity really is supernatural. I mean, for centuries, the scholars have been trying to strip Christianity of the miraculous. But if you take away the supernatural from our faith, there's nothing left. You with me? There's nothing left. So either, here's the thing, either A, Christianity is true, and everything the Bible says happened really happened. And if it's true, then it's a cosmic truth. It's a life rearranging truth. And if you believe Christmas really happened, you can't be the same as someone who doesn't believe it. It's too big a truth. Or, and this is really my burden, or it's not true. And if it's not true, then it doesn't matter at all. See, if it's, if it's true, if what we claim is true, then it's the most important thing. If it's not true, it's not important at all. It's a lie. You ought to run from it. But the only thing that it can't be is kind of important. This can't be like number two or number five or number nine on the list of important things in your life. It's just too big a truth. It's not rational because it's supernatural. And therefore, it either happened or it didn't. And if it did, it's the most important thing. It's a life rearranging thing. It's a cosmic truth that shakes up your whole life so that you're different than you were when you, when you say you believe it. But it also means if you're a Christian that you're a miracle. That you don't just naturally, nobody naturally becomes a Christian. You don't naturally become a Christian because you go to church or you grew up in a Christian home. You have to supernaturally become a Christian. There's no other way. I mean, if you're a Christian, what makes you different is not something you did, but something God did. And so Christianity is not something done by you for God. It's something done by God for you and to you and in you by, the, by his power. 
And here's the thing, the only, the only rational response to this surprise, how do kids act, think, how do kids act to a surprise on Christmas morning? The, the only rational response to this miracle, to this wonder, is to wonder. I remember uh, years ago, gosh, I, I, I really, I have a graduating senior, and, and some, man, I really do miss when they were little. They're so much fun. They're still fun, but they're really fun when they were little. And we were watching The Prince of Egypt, the old Disney movie about the Exodus, if you've seen that. And it was the part in the, in the thing there where, where they were crossing the Red Sea and the walls of water went up and then the lightning strikes and the whales are swimming through the water. Do you remember that? It really is. They did a great job. It's beautiful. And I remember Adrian Morris, uh, who's Allison and Chris Bauer's son, was spending the night at our house, and he and Canaan, and they were like four or five years old at the time, were watching it in the back bedroom. And I still remember where they were. It was one of those just indelible moments. And, and that part of the scene, it was really loud, and we had them back there, and they were eating popcorn. And, and all of a sudden, they just kind of got sucked in, and this stuff started happening, and they just went, wow. And my crusty old man heart thought, yep, that's it. That's it. That's the only way. That's the only way to respond to that. That's the only rational response to the wonders that God does, and it's the only rational response to the incarnation. Jonathan Edwards said that true Christianity is affect, religious affection. So we have to ask the question, are we affected? Do we feel? Do we feel anything? Here, this is a hard truth, but let me just say this, and I said to some high school students this week, and I wanted to say it to you as well, but if you hate Christianity because you understand its truth claims, you're actually closer to being a Christian than if you're going through the motions. At least you're understanding the implications. What do you feel? Do you feel anything? Let me ask a really hard question. What does your countenance say? Your heart shows up in your face. It's really something I'm working on, man. I'm telling you, I get killed over this, but do you feel wonder? And if you do, is there wonder? Can I see it on your face? Can we work on that? Is there wonder? If not, then consider this last thing, and maybe it'll be the key that unlocks it for you. Not only are we told of the deep darkness and of the dawning light, but we're also promised a bright future here, that the world is still a land of deep darkness. And sometimes it seems like the darkness is deepening. You with me? Doesn't it? And so we approach this text in much the same way the original audience would have too, looking forward to the day when this promised child king would come a second time, but this time the light will not just shine into the darkness, it will vanquish the darkness. And I just, I, I remembered in Revelation, it says that in the new heavens and the new earth, our future, this is Revelation 22 and, tw- and, and then back in 21, it says there will be no more night. There will be no more darkness. Not only that, it goes on to say, they will not need light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. <laughs> and then it says the city The new Jerusalem, our heavenly home, will have no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, and by his light will the nations walk. What does that mean? Well, on the one hand, it means that we were made to sun our souls in the light of the glory of God. Do you know that? You were made to sun your soul in the light of the glory of God. Of God, The light of God's face shining on us is an image of personal, intimate knowledge of God. We are shriveled up without it. 
And Paul describes a person, we read this a minute ago, as becoming a Christian as having an experience of the light of the knowledge of God's glory shining, beginning to shine in their hearts. And the promise of the second coming into the new heavens and the new earth is better than Isaiah's prophecy because it says when he comes again, there will be no more darkness. There won't even be a sun because the glory of God will be so immediate that it will give light and it'll be all the light that we need. And we will know God so intimately and so immediately that all of the darkness will be driven away. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait. Won't that be great? Well, here's the good news. We don't have to wait. Because the light of this new day has already dawned. It's early in the morning still, but the morning has come. In the birth of Jesus Christ, he is the light of the world, the Bible says, shining into the midst of the darkness, even now, and you can walk in the light as he is in the light when you put your hope and trust in Christ's works on your behalf and not in your own moral efforts, not looking to the world to get unstuck, but looking to him. Because when Jesus died on the cross, that darkness fell again. Do you remember? It was a moment. Um, it, it was in that moment that the land became literally a land of deep darkness. And it was a darkness deeper than ever before in history. Literal darkness. The judgment of God coming down because Jesus hung there on the cross for our sins. And the air, you could barely breathe because it was so thick with God-forsakenness. The light of the world descended into darkness in order to bring us into God's light. And his light went out so that it could be relit in us. Jesus left the world, but he left behind his light in us. He was the light of the world. He is now the light of the world in us. And we're told not to keep that light hidden, but to let it shine in beautiful works that others can see so that in our sacrifice and our kindness and humility and courage, we should be shining as a light in an otherwise dark and dreary world, that our gratitude, Philippians says, and our joy should cause us to stand out like stars in the night sky. If your faith is in Jesus, then the light of God's face is shining upon you because it went out on him. Together, we are the light of the world. We are sitting on a hill. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, I believe Christianity is I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. It's one of my favorite quotes of his. The perfect description, I think, of this metaphor of light and darkness, that Christianity is the only belief system that makes sense of the world. And so I would tell you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, believe, put your faith in Jesus, because it'll be like your eyes being opened. The light will finally come. This world is still a very deep, dark place. Our job is to light up the world with beautiful joy and with beautiful works. Uh, in the very last scene of the last book of the Narnia series, a great battle is fought at a place called Stable Hill. If you're familiar with the story, and King Tyrion and his forces are driven back to the stable. It's just a small thing, maybe six feet by 12 feet or something, and they're forced to retreat inside, though they don't even know if they'll, how they'll fit. But once they walk, they walk into the stable door, they're blinded by light, and they realize that they're in a vast expanse of blue skies and rolling hills, and the kings and the queens of old are there. And Tyrion said, <laughs> this great line, he said, it seems that the stable scene from within and the stable scene from without are two very different places. Its inside is much bigger than the outside, and it's, it's a wonderful line. 
that the world looks at the baby Jesus lying in a feeding trough and sees foolishness, but for us to believe it is the hope of the world. He is the hope of the world. He is the undoing of the darkness. And then Lucy, who always seems to have the best lines, if you know the story, she's the one with the most spiritual sensibility. She said, yes, in our world too, a stable once had something inside of it that was bigger than the whole world. True. He is. And when you see it, when he becomes a wonder to you, then you will begin to shine with his light for all to see. Amen. Pray with me, will you? Father, in these last moments that we have to gather around your table, would you light up, light up our hearts? Would you use this meal, this, this sacrament, and these moments we have together now to do just that? To, to pierce through our, our darkness, our spiritual apathy, our hard hearts. To cause your light to flood in, your blinding, glorious light. To bring faith where there's been unbelief. To strengthen us where we've been feeble spiritually. And to put within us a light that could shine for the world to see. This is our hope. Uh, what a great future you've promised us, but what, a, what, an even, what an even better opportunity for us today. And so, Father, come. Holy Spirit, come. Make known the Son to us in powerful ways in these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So listen, I know, I know that this world can be a really, really dark place. It's full of sadness and gloom for a lot of people, and I know there's some pretty scary things or some pretty sad things, some pretty big disappointments or worries or fears that might meet you out as soon as you go outside of those doors. But here's the promise, that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, those things remain to some degree, but the, but the most important thing, the most important thing has happened. That now, because of the work of Christ for you, the light of the Father's face shines upon you. And that light has the power to transform even the most scary things into places of hope, or wonder, or curiosity. I wonder what God's doing here, whatever it might be. And so receive this benediction, right? Knowing that if your faith is in Jesus, uh, you, can, you can sun your soul in the, in the light of the Father's face. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.